Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. All right, and welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom. And today what we're going to do is cover the second part of this podcast on, um, or the second podcast, rather, on Tarkovsky's Stalker, Solaris, and in this case, The Sublime. Last week we talked about the those films in their relationship to the mystics and the mystic tradition, and now we're going to talk a little bit more about a secular type tradition, and that is especially the sublime and that philosophical category and how it might apply to this this film. And let's go for it. So the sublime is an idea that emerges in philosophy and especially in the philosophy of aesthetics. The sublime, we start to see that concept kind of mold around in the beginning of the first century AD and probably before then. Um, and the first real thinker to bring that concept into a kind of systematic study would be Longinus. Longinus's dates are unknown, but it appears that he was living probably within the first century or early within the first century AD, though there is dispute about his authorship. And for him, at the beginning of his work, he discusses past critics who had been picking up on these themes, and then he decided to comment on it and make it more systematic. Now, for him, the sublime is an aspect of rhetoric that is above the ordinary. Um, And so the sublime is that which can elevate the individual who's reading those words into an ecstasy. Um, it, It combines pleasure and ecstasy in such a way, and it's really substantive in the sense that we can imagine the author pushing himself or herself into a work that would be considered sublime. So here's an extended quote from Longinus on the sublime. I need only state, without enlarging further on the matter, that the sublime, whether it occurs, consists in a certain loftiness and excellence of language, and that it is by this, and this only, that the greatest poets and prose writers have gained eminence and won themselves a lasting place in the temple of fame. A lofty passage does not convince the reader of the reader, but takes him out of himself. That which is admirable ever confounds our judgment and ellipses that which is merely reasonable or agreeable. To believe or not is usually in our own power, but the sublime, acting with an imperious and irresistible force, sways every reader whether he will or no. Skill in invention, lucid agreement, and disposition of facts are appreciated not by one passage or by two, but gradually manifest themselves in the general structure of a work. But a sublime thought, if happily timid, illuminates an entire subject with the vividness of a lightning flash and exhibits the whole power of the orator in a moment of time. End quote. 
So you could see here that the sublime is um, kind of built into the totality of a work. So he would look towards something like the, the Iliad or the Odyssey as being sublime, not for a, an individual passage or an individual moment of an ecstasy, but in the totalizing effect of a work on the individual. That is what provides ecstasy for the individual reader. That's what drives the individual out of himself or herself. Um, and it's also centered in the author as author. The author as author is providing the sublime, it is offering up the sublime. Um, it isn't merely the reader looking at the words and experiencing the words, but the reader looking at the words and experiencing the author having seen the author or the author having put himself or herself into the work, fully into the work. Um, Mojanus writes about this with an ode of Sappho, where the, the writer, she's placed herself entirely in the, in the ode and the experience of reading the ode, which is rather short, especially compared to the Odyssey, um, brings the full life of the author there and raises the individual reader into a moment of ecstasy. Um, so the sublime then is something both in you and something you can develop. The sublime also leads to a loss of rationale. And that's part of that blend of pleasure and ecstasy. There's a suspension of those rational faculties. However, when we talk about Longinus and the sublime, we are still talking about an aesthetic category, and it appears a category of rhetoric. Most of his book, in most of his book, Longinus is concerned with the rhetorical tropes and figures that can lead to the sublime. So it starts with these philosophical reflections on aesthetics, and then it leads to a, a, a very kind of structuralist notion of the sublime. And by structuralist, I mean not not in the, the kind of post-1950s way, but structuralist in the sense that we learn which tropes structure or create the sublime and how you can employ them over the length of a work in order to create this effect. And so in terms of our primary texts, Stalker and Solaris, I think the Longinus reading probably offers very little since it is about, um, it is about rhetoric or is about reading. Uh, I, I think maybe you might be able to find that in the fact that Hari and Kelvin are reading Cervantes. We talked about this in the podcast, that they are kind of experiencing this, this great work of Western literature. And it may be the case that there is a sort of um, comic sublime that you encounter in, in the total work of Cervantes. I'm not entirely sure. We also see another experience of her looking at the work of uh, uh, Pieter Brugel, and she's looking at uh, copies of his painting of the, the different seasons. And it might be the case that she's having an experience of ecstasy or being lifted out of herself. The scene is shot as such, right? There, there's shots of her looking at the painting, then close-ups on the painting. Um, there's a lot of focus on this moment, a lot of focus on her finally be able, being able to get out of her head. 
because Hari throughout this picture is sort of a satellite of Kelvin. The visitors to the people on the space station, if you remember the film, they are satellites to the people they are visiting. They can't leave them for a period of time, otherwise they cease to exist. However, over time, eventually, these visitors seem to acquire a, an independence from their source. And it may be that this independence is recognized by noting Hari's ability to have moments of ecstasy or escape via the art of either Cervantes or Bruegel. Um, that's uh, somewhat of a rough reading, I'll, I'll admit that, that... Um, that I'm not entirely convinced of that. It's a possibility, but as we shall see, I think there are better readings of the sublime as can be applied to um, to these films. And so let's jump ahead a few hundred years to 1757. And here we have um, Edmund Burke, who, you know, very famous as a philosopher, but also as an aesthetic philosopher, as a political philosopher rather, and as a politician, but also just as famous as an aesthetic philosopher. And when he's very young, I think as young as 19, is when he initially writes the draft for a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. Uh, it isn't published until 1757, where he's, I think he's a bit older, I think he's closer to 30 then. But I believe he wrote the work when he was a lot younger. But anyway, um, Burke is looking at the works of art more broadly, and he's seeing two major aesthetic categories in these works, um, the beautiful and the sublime. So the beautiful is something that's, that's sort of tender, symmetrical, appealing, drawing us in. Um, you, you might say he's associating it with the feminine. The sublime is an aspect of the aesthetic, which is the power to compel and destroy us, but not really. Um, the beautiful might be well-formed and pleasing. Um, the sublime, what it is, is he says, quote, the passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended with some degree of horror. In this case, the mind is entirely filled with its object, so that it cannot entertain any other, nor, by consequence, reason on that object which employs it. Hence arises the great power of the sublime, that, far from being produced by them, it anticipates our reasoning and hurries it on by an irresistible force. Astonish is astonishment, as I have said, is the effect of the sublime in its highest degree. The inferior effects are admiration, reverence, and respect." End quote. Okay. So the sublime then is this kind of overwhelming feeling, and it does relate to the feeling of life and death, the feeling of um, imagining something overwhelming and destroying. However, if you are actually about to literally be destroyed, then you're not encountering the sublime, you're, you're encountering death. Um, you know, if, if a bear is coming at you, 
don't, you know, sit back and encounter the sublime, run away, right? The, the sublime really is an aesthetic category. It, it's a feeling when you're encountering something um, that has a profound, uh, something in art or even in nature that has a profound effect upon you. Um, so, you know, the idea of the sublime would be like Niagara Falls, right? Going underneath Niagara Falls and seeing these great, waves crashing down that would be an encounter of the sublime but if you're actually going over the falls you're, you're just dying you're not really you're not encountering this thing uh, and that is that is his point that's burke's point here um and so we begin to see maybe a little bit more in burke of what these characters are encountering especially in solaris where the the feeling of astonishment over encountering the dead reborn and in such the way they are reborn is the effect of the sublime and it's the effect of of solaris it is um not a pleasurable feeling necessarily like we, we get with longinus but it is um it is the point at which we can't move anymore. We're kind of pinned to the ground with our, with our feeling of being overwhelmed. And I think you could imagine that with the initial encounter that Kelvin has with Hari. Now, his response to this, his response to being overwhelmed and astonished is to um, put her into a little spacecraft and send her out into space, right? That's what he does with the first Hari. Furthermore, as Burke says, the great power of the sublime anticipates our reasoning and hurries it on by an irresistible force. Um, what I think he means here is by anticipating our reasoning is that it, it doesn't allow us to reason out the feelings we're having or the experience we're having. What instead happens is it anticipates our reasoning, meaning it um, it occurs before we can rationally describe what's happening to us. Mostly, most of us can rationally describe what's happening to us as it's happening, right? Most of our days are filled with mayusha and, and kind of boring little incidents. You know, when, when you cook dinner, your rationale leads you through the process of cooking dinner. You know, the fact that the, the chicken goes from um, this kind of wet white meat to something edible and delicious is not something that's overwhelming and surprising. The oven is not magic. You roughly know how an oven works, even if you don't know all the, the physics of it. You know, you haven't studied thermodynamics um, or you haven't studied in, in depth uh you know, the chemistry of culinary preparation or anything like that. However, you're perfectly aware, I'm sure, of how, uh, of what you anticipate an oven to do to the chicken. Your reason is leading you. Here, it's action that doesn't necessarily evade reason, um, but it provides an output that you're not prepared to reason yet. And so the separation of the emotional apparatus or apparati from the rational apparatus is part of, I think, what Burke is talking about when he's talking about this feeling. And this is a, a really big part of Solaris, both the book and the movie, is the 
limits of reason, right? And in the book, reason is always trailing. Reason is always running up behind the events on Solaris. And, uh, you know, unlike the movie, the book has just a tremendous amount of information about activity that occurred on the planet. There's these great architectural structures that kind of would rise up on the planet and then collapse um, that nobody could really explain. There would They would send different gear into the the ocean of the planet and the planet would kind of replicate that. And then other times it just wouldn't, it wouldn't respond at all. Um, it seemed at times that the planet was replicating the inner thoughts of people um, in a kind of rough or crude way. And yet it wasn't entirely clear how the planet was doing it or why. And so the entire point of the book of Solaris is why is never answered. The question of why is never answered. Uh, how is they get there with how it's always this kind of like neutrino based stuff the planet uses to make what it makes but we're never entirely sure why the planet's doing what it's doing rationale always trails action this is also true i think in the movie where what hari is 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 sort of impossible to say and why the guests are there are also impossible uh, the movie is more focused on this human relationship between Hari and Kelvin. It, it isn't bringing in the history of solaristics, as does the book. Um, but that question of why still remains. It's just not scientized the way it is in the book. It, it is more invested in this, this human relationship. Um, and why is this woman back now? And, and then you know, what, what do we do once something unreasonable has happened? And once we are stuck with the consequences of something we can't explain, um, what to do after that seems to be a, a, a rather difficult task. Uh, and you can imagine, and I can imagine Kelvin's sort of state of stasis in this spaceship. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really do any work. Um, is a consequence of the sublime, or that's the effect of the sublime. That is the, the consequence of astonishment, right? The consequence of astonishment over a long period of time is paralysis. Astonishment itself is paralysis, you know, just temporary. I would say astonishment extended is, is, is paralysis. And Kelvin is paralyzed, and he sort of acts in ways that aren't themselves consistent. So he both decides he's going to stay there with Hari for the rest of his days or her days or, or, or some extended period. But he also participates in creating the encephalogram, which is going to be sent down to the planet, presumably in order to cancel out the visitors, to cancel out or destroy Hari. And so he's just seemingly responding to what people want. The encephalogram was not his idea. I think it's snouts, if I remember correctly. Um, it's been a little while since I've seen the movie. But regardless, he just says he'll do it. He'll just he just goes along. When Hari's there, he says he'll just he'll just stay here. And so the the kind of Burkean reading of the movie, I think, touches on that notion of paralysis more than anything else. Next up is Immanuel Kant, and Kant we've talked about before is that late 18th century German philosopher who's you know famous for his different 
different works is his system, which includes ethics, aesthetics, uh, metaphysics, um, and also he's very famous for his famous essay on what is the Enlightenment. Um, and so anyway, Kant, since he wrote on everything, also wrote on the sublime. And this is what he writes. He writes that the sublime falls into two categories, the mathematical and the dynamical. So the mathematical sublime is the, the feeling of reason over nature, reason's superiority to imagination, allowing us to understand the capacity of something. This occurs or can be felt when we try and comprehend something beyond our capacity. Okay, so let's let's unpack that. Um, the ability to reason something that is beyond our capacity is a form of mathematical sublime. So I think an example of this might be the way infinity is used in math. You can talk about something, an endless sequence of something, and actually have a conversation about it, actually put it into mathematical notation, and actually make predictions based upon that. To a certain extent, um, algebra and calculus are also based upon this. If you're talking about um, the, the, uh, where a line goes over time, the change in function over time, you can talk about that infinitely, that, it's con that the line on the graph is continuing infinitely. We also can talk about in set theory, infinities, and actually different types of infinities. You can talk about the infinity of, um, of cardinal numbers, but you could also talk about the infinity of prime numbers too. Those are two sets of infinity, they're endless sets, but they are of different sizes. There's different amounts of members in each sets, even though they're infinite. Um, this is beyond our capacity, right? We can't literally imagine an infinite amount of numbers. Therefore, this, this kind of mathematical shorthand developed through our ability to reason abstractly allows us uh, some sort of, uh, of means of understanding nature or understanding the abstract in a way that our, let's say our imagination really can't get at it. Right? You can't imagine an infinite amount of numbers. You can't imagine the, the distance of the Milky Way, which I think the diameter of the Milky Way is something like a hundred billion light years, if I'm not mistaken, I, I can look that up, but it's, it's an incredibly long distance, even if I'm getting the number wrong. Uh, even if it's only 100 million light years, that's still far beyond our capacity to imagine. And yet we can make predictions about the size of the Milky Way. We can make predictions about what objects we're seeing in the sky due to our understanding of this immense space. We can use that immense space and the, the time it takes for light to get to us from this galaxy and from objects in other galaxies in order to understand what an earlier version of the universe was like. You know, quasars are kind of famous for this. They're like, you know, more than 10 billion light years away. And we have an understanding of what these kind of very early, uh, early objects in space were like. Um, and this is all part of the mathematical sublime, even though, you know, try and, and think through a hundred million light years. You, you know, you, you can't, right? And so that is our reasoning conquering nature. And this is Kant, this is what he writes, quote, 
Just because there is in our imagination a striving to advance to the infinite, while in our reason there lies a claim to absolute totality, as to a real idea, the very inadequacy of our faculty for estimating the magnitude of the things in the sensible world uh, vis-a-vis imagination, awakens the feeling of a supersensual faculty in us. That was, excuse me, supersensible faculty in us. Um, so we have this idea, like, since we are capable of thinking of infinity as a whole, using reason, there's an aspect of our mind that supersedes sense. And so that's, that's a pretty profound idea, is that the rational capacities, that they're not um, are just responders to sense, or they make, um, they make applications out of sense reception. And in fact, the rational faculties are super sensible. They conquer sense. They provide more information than our senses can lead to. And that is a fact of the sublime. Now, the dynamical sublime, this is when we recognize that nature has no power over us, when we experience fear while knowing we are safe. And so this, again, is much closer to that Burkean idea of the sublime, which is opposed to the beautiful, um, which is the ability to sort of, this is, is when the imagination comes back in. Is, is knowing something, imagining something in the natural world um, that can be of danger, that can be overwhelming. However, we then find ourselves not to be actually experiencing that, right? So if you're thinking of the, sitting here and thinking of this podcast and you imagine um, yourself you know, falling from the top of the Empire State Building, right? kind of tumbling out of the, the top floor or the observer deck of the Empire State Building. And you can imagine the sense of falling. You know, we've all tripped, we've all had that kind of dream sense of falling, right? Um, yet, you're not actually in any danger because you're, you're sitting here and listening to the podcast or running or, or in your car or listening to this podcast, whatever it is. You're not actually having that experience of of danger, nature, the, the forces of gravity have no real control over you in that way right now. It doesn't say gravity doesn't have control over you, of course it does, but in the way you're imagining it, it doesn't. And so that seems to me uh, much closer to the, the Berkian notion of the sublime, as I said before. Um, but those are kind of Kant's idea of the sublime and what he says then is judgments of the sublime are based on feelings on pleasure or liking although he does say Kant that beauty is more important than sublimity however it is also not clear if he's referring to nature or if there can be a sublime art right so so when it comes to aesthetics right so we talked about the dynamical and the mathematical sublime but when it comes to these kind of aesthetic notions of the sublime it is based on how much pleasure this kind of um, imaginative escape or imaginative embrace provides. Uh, beauty might be more important. However, to me, it does seem difficult to determine if this is an experience of nature or this is merely an experience of art.
And so, as I said before, I, I do think Tarkovsky and Lem's vision of the sublime, at least as it plays out in these two works, is kind of dealing in that space between Burke and Kant. Um, so, you know, Burke's idea of the sublime overwhelming us, you know, we've talked about that, and I think that is, is manifest in the film and in the planet too, excuse me, and in the book too. Uh, what's also very interesting about this idea of being overwhelmed is that, you know, the nature of the planet overwhelms us, uh, which is more what Lem is bringing forward in his novel. And it's not just the nature of the, of the planet, the fact that it creates these kind of structures, as I said before, but it's also the sheer amount of information that people have taken from the planet. In, in the novel, there's this discipline known as solaristics, and Lem goes into a lot of detail as to what solaristics is. And it's this immense kind of almost medieval philosophy uh, that covers all different types of disciplines. That's why it's medieval. It's sort of um, I'm totalizing in the amount of um, in the amount of investigatory avenues it covers, the amount of scientific discourses it looks at in relation to Solaris. And it seems like anybody interested in solaristics has to be sort of a jack of all trades of psychology, of chemistry, of physics. Um, of philosophy and solaristics is covering all this period and and lem all of these these discourses and lem traces through them in a kind of grand way but also in an overwhelming way there's so much information about the discipline of studying the planet because the planet has produced so much speculation right reason is outrunning uh, outrunning kind of sense here in, in one way, but also reason is is dragging behind. Now, what I mean by that is the the philosophy of the planet, the philosophy of solaristics, is constantly trying to produce explanations. It's running ahead, making predictions, things like that. Um, however, whatever the planet does doesn't allow an answer to these rational discourses. So reason both runs ahead to make predictions about Solaris, and it's also dragging behind because it can never actually account for the phenomena that are occurring. There's also a sense of the mathematical sublime in Solaristics. The, the kind of belief that we can reason out an explanation for the planet and how the planet behaves. I think that is, is very much kind of a, a hope of the mathematical sublime or a hope of mathematics or philosophy as explaining this world. However, it does appear that the, you know, the mathematical sublime is going to fail. It's not going to get us there. Okay, so moving on to Thomas, I, I believe it's pronounced Weiskel or Weiskel, I'm not entirely sure. But he's a, a 20th century philosopher who works on the sublime. Um, and he studied the romantic notion of the sublime. And we talked about the, rom the romantics a little before. We talked really about the Jena romantics, German language romantics. This is a little more universal. It's a little more British also, looking at the, the kind of British romantic movement of the last decade of the 18th century and the first two decades of the 19th century. And uh, Viscal 
was interested in how the sublime played out amongst these thinkers or artists. And he seems to be especially concerned with the balance of signifier and signified. Um, well, what does that mean? So the signifier is that which indicates something and the signified is that which is indicated. So the famous example, this is from um, Saussure, Ferdinand de Saussure, the, the linguist, the word tree. The word tree is a signifier. The leafy thing with bark is signified. So language is a collection of signifiers. The arrow that points to things out in the world, these are the signified. So anyway, he's interested in that kind of balance. And so we'll, we'll just lay out that language before we get into his concept of the sublime, which he sees in three stages. So stage one, the mind is determined and familiar. The signifier offers no unusual obstacles to natural scene of the natural scene to our comprehension. Right. So the signifier latches onto the signified, um, Everything is familiar, everything is easy. Point two, the determinant relation between signifier and signified collapses, and the mind faces a radical disconnection between the object and its possible meaning. The second moment in the experience is one of negation, absence, and alienation. The painful confrontation with the absence or negation of meaning, and this is central to the romantic writers. So at this point, the, the, the relationship between, let's say, uh, tree and leafy thing with bark collapses. Of course, he's not necessarily talking about those kind of every, everyday objects that we see, but this idea of, um, of seeing things in the world and being able to give them meaning, right? Uh, and I don't mean just kind of dictionary type meanings. I mean, being able to uh, understand what they are in relation to you and in relation to each other. And suddenly, when you can't do that, you start to see things as being without meaning or without definition, as opposed to assigning them a definition, as opposed to having a, a positive relationship. Positive, I mean, by that I mean kind of positivistic, which is... Um, to be able to assign a definition or meaning to the thing. Instead, it's, it's a relationship of negation. It is saying something is which you can't define, right? You can't say what that is. You can't speak it. Um, and then you're alienated consequently from it, right? If you can assign a signifier to something, then that relationship between you and it, your, your language abilities, which situates you in relationship to that in the world, you become alienated from it. And so it becomes kind of a, um, an alienation effect. And this is kind of what he thought romantic writing was about. It was kind of about this feeling. Um, so for him though, we get to stage three, the loss of meaning is only temporary in the experience of the sublime. This reflects the disequilibrium between the object and meaning as it is painfully felt. So that feeling of alienation, that's pain um, because it's separating you from the object. But don't worry, it's only temporary. 
And so Weisskel, when it comes to the loss of meaning, sees the Romantics as positing two, let's say, two resolutions for the sublime based upon how the loss of meaning is occurring, either by the excess of signifiers or excess of signified. So if the loss of meaning occurs because there's an excess on the plane of the signifiers, so that's the, um, the, the natural world, the empirical world, there's just too much stuff that we don't have language for, then you sort of transcend the normal world, right? And you gain an access to a spiritual realm, right? And this is super sensual. It's beyond our senses. We no longer have necessarily an understanding of that in terms of sense experience, but it, it's what happens when the world is too much. There's kind of a spiritual transcendence. Um, Weiskel refers to this as the negative or metaphorical sublime. And, and this is what he sees in Kant. He, he would say that, um, that this is his reading of Kant. Okay. Uh, and, and so it's the failure of reason, um, or the, the failure rather of imagination which leads to reason relating to a transcendent or supersensual realm. Since the imagination can't assign enough language to the things out there in the world or understanding, then reason turns and grabs on to the transcendence. Um, so, but the second resolution comes when we have an excess of the signified, right? Um, and this is when the mind can't make meaning because of that. Um, he calls this the egotistical, positive, or metonomical sublime. And this is a big part, according to Weisskel, of Wordsworth, William Wordsworth's poetry. Um, and what happens here is that the mind's power of constructing meaning no longer has any support outside of itself. Therefore, the mind sort of goes into itself and begins to try and um, and construct meaning there. However, for for words within these poets, as Baikal reads it, rather than affirm the mind's autonomy and nature's inadequacy, uh, Wordsworth is really seeking a state of harmony or balance between the two. Um, and so you don't need for him superiority of signified or signifier mind or nature rather instead of the, the painful burden of an unintelligible world instead of the difficulty of seeing the world in that way um, or the difficulty of being the only source of meaning in the world instead the mind has to sort of balance the the imbalance right it has to find a balance between itself and its constructions with nature in order to discover truth. And so it's this kind of work towards a, a kind of a restitution of balance between these, between the mind and nature that is caused by this sublime response, right? And so that's all very complicated. Um, 
And I, I think this version of the Sublime also touches on something in Solaris, and I think even more so than the Kantian stuff, even though it clearly does have a lot in common with with Kant, right? This idea of the mind as um, as having to construct great systems that it is beyond nature or that it can't really line up with nature necessarily. That really reminds us of Kant's mathematical sublime. Um, however, here, what, what Weisskow reads in the Wordsworth poetry that he's, he's reading is this idea of what appears to be negotiation with nature. Not that we are one with nature or anything like that, the sort of stereotypical way of looking at the romantic poets, but instead that nature is something alien from us that we are, we are in negotiation with. And that seems to be what's happening in Solaris, at least through the first maybe two acts of the film, right? It's this idea of there are both an excess of signifieds, so there's more in this planet than can be explained, uh, right? And, you know, with Hari, there's more Haris than can be explained. I think by the end, we have three Haris. We have original, we have the one who he launches into the, launches into space with the space capsule. And we also have the one who, who remains behind, who eventually is um, killed by the encephalogram. Uh, and we have, you know, there are literally more women than can be explained by nature. It's even hard to talk about which Hari is which, because we never are able to say exactly who this person is. And at one point he says, no, you're not her. You're now an independent person from her. This to me is uh, her being the original Hari. So he, Kelvin, I should unpack that. Kelvin says to the new Hari, you're not the old Hari. You were, but now you've become something independent. To me, this, this really touches on the Weisskill idea of this kind of uh, balance between the, the rational mind, which is creating worlds out of itself, which we see in this, in this work as they try to explain things. They don't actually explain what's happening on the planet. They create kind of fancy rationales for what's happening on the planet. Um, but for him, uh, the, the point where he's able to say, you're not her, you're now somebody independent, seems to be this sort of negotiation between excess of signifiers, the excess of kind of rational explanations, and the excess of the signified, the excess of phenomena occurring in the world of Solaris and the space station in Solaris itself. And what the sublime is for, for Kelvin, for Snow, for Sartorius, those are the, the three people on the space station, is something they're, let's say, recovering from. And so this would be the opposite to the paralysis argument, where the entire film is, is Kelvin in a state of prolonged paralysis caused by the sublime. Here, he's encountered the sublime. It's an excess of you know, in this case, probably an excess of, of signifieds. Um, but in so doing, uh, he tries to resolve 
the sublime. The sublime is something that resolves, as Weiskel tells us, by sort of assigning Hari a role in this world and a, a role for himself in relation to her. Um, eventually, it seems like this resolution doesn't take, because even as she is, is eliminated from the world, he still finds himself then on the surface of Solaris at the end, indulging in an excess of signifies, right? There is another version of his parents' estate on the planet. There's more than one parent, right? More than one father. There's more than one uh, parental estate. There's too much. There's an excess by its nature. And it seems as if Kelvin's tragedy in the end is his inability to resolve excess, both in the in the signifiers and in the signified. Um, last thing I wanted to mention is uh, was Zhang Lapchun. I think I say his, that's how you say his name. He has this idea of the sublime, uh, which he calls the limit situation, in which we see that the sublime is shaped by the limits of who we are, and he assigns three limits: top limit, bottom limit, and median limit. The top. Um, is what transcends the natural and the human. So it's beyond what can be naturally explained or explained by humans. The bottom is, is non-existence, right? The bottom limit is non-existence. And the median is the bloom of being in its domain, which I take as, uh, as, the, as human beings in their most impressive manifestation. Um, the sublime then is the limits of our experience, but we're also, according to saying, able to transcend those experiences. Uh, so therefore I can stretch to meet achievements. The sublime works in that way. So I can bloom more, right? I can, I can have, um, I can be in a greater way. I can, uh, uh, achieve more as a human being, but also I can expand beyond what we thought of to be the, hum the, the limits of human knowledge or natural knowledge. I can move beyond that. I'm not sure if you can transcend the bottom limit uh, and understand non-existence. Non-existence seems to be a, a pretty firm floor, um, but he imagines this kind of, this kind of stretching outward. Um, that again, I think is also within this movie, within Solaris, but it is part of the tragedy of Solaris. It seems to be that it is about, um, it's about that kind of top limit sublimity and, and kind of pushing beyond that limit situation, but really in the end failing. Right? I, think, I think a lot of Solaris might be about the failure of the sublime or dealing with the sublime. And this, you know, again, would be a, another example. Um, so one more. Actually, I said that was going to be the last one, but I have one more I want to talk about, which is the, the postmodern philosopher, John Francis Leotard. And Leotard's account of the sublime might be the best one for this film. Um, and I'll tell you why. So... For him, the sublime directs attention to what he calls aporia. Aporia 
is just this this opening or or rend in something we think we understand. So if you think you understand something and you kind of pull it apart and show how your tightly, neatly, compact idea of knowledge can actually be dissected or pulled. There's doubt in the center of how you think of the thing. And so what happens is the sublime is that moment of doubt, the inability of reason to cover all bases, but also the inability of reason to work in the modern world. So, you know, aporia then would be um, the failure of the enlightenment in one sense, the failure of rational knowledge to explain all things and all phenomena, right? And, and you know, quantum mechanics kind of keeps ripping openings in our knowledge. We think time is one directional. However, we know from experiments that we can direct the direction that a particle set out to go in billions of light years earlier merely by observing. So we have this this careful collection of facts or our understanding of a system which then falls apart. And and the modern is about seeing the doubt, right? Recognizing the openings or holes. Uh, and I think that is actually a vision of the sublime which takes into account Solaris, both the movie and the book. It is the inexplicable nature of the planet that is the center of both, right? And, and the inexplicable nature of the planet, that's the, the aporia or aporia, depending on how you're going to pronounce it, the, the aporia that opens up the human relationship and our understanding of what it means to be human um, Hari is now one of three forms. What is the individual Hari? Who is this person? Well, she might be what Kelvin remembers. I mean, that seems to be pretty clear in both media, in both the, the movie and the book, that she's a reflection of Kelvin's subconscious. Um, so is Hari, as he knows her, simply that which he's retained? Um, is Hari the individual uh, something that was separated from him, separate, a separate I, a separate person from him? Um, but once she dies, does that separation cease to exist? The, even the nature of identifying who a person is, well, there's a big hole in that. There's a big opening. Um, when a person isn't there, what are we identifying? You know, the physical, can we describe are our loved ones in terms of these qualities? Would our loved ones describe themselves in that way? There really is an opening in this idea of the individual that Solaris creates. Uh, furthermore, Solaris can't be explained. It, it does not give us explanation. Um, we're never going to get at it. And this idea of what appears in the book to be like a hundred years of scientific reasoning really can't put a put give give us an explanation of, as to what the planet is and so then the sublime is seeing doubt the the aporia the aporia the doubt that is front and center um but that we rarely recognize that we can't recognize and i think those are the different philosophies of the sublime and how they fit in to uh, this film. 
Um, I, I do think I, we didn't talk about Stalker very much. I think the, the kind of mystical knowledge fits better with Stalker here. Stalker does have a sense of the sublime in that these um, these people who are going to the room are going to find something that transcends meaning. So you have the room or the zone in which the room can be found. Uh, there is nothing rational about how we approach it. There is nothing rational about how space and time function in that area. Um, and it seems like Stalker himself has sort of found a romantic relationship to the room. He is really able to balance the the inability of anyone to explain the room. He's actually perfectly happy without an explanation, just so long as it's it's appreciated. And it seems like aesthetic appreciation, and more than aesthetic appreciation, it's almost reverence, a kind of divine reverence for the room and the zone is what allows him to to psychologically deal with it, to keep going back to it without it overwhelming him or, or paralyzing him. Um, and and his, his abilities, therefore, seem to speak to his simplicity. He is the least intellectual of, of the people in the film. Um, he takes a, a scientist there and a writer there. Both are, are very accomplished and hope to be more accomplished by going to the room. And they can't handle it. They find themselves completely paralyzed before they even enter the room, and therefore they don't. And yet he's able to return again and again. And he hopes to afford people the rewards of the room, to for them to experience the sublime and to to handle it right to to make to make those negotiations between the psyche that is much too much and the empirical world the natural world of the zone in the room which is also much too much and there seems to be a great simplicity needed in order to balance those things and he hopes to afford people that simplicity, ironically enough, through granting them whatever wish their heart really desires, which is what the, the zone does. It, it gives you whatever you secretly want the most. Um, and so it's this, this excess of desire that, that the zone affords people. Um, however, no one seems to be able to deal with that excess, right? It, we, we learn it kind of crushes people. And, and eventually the, the writer and the scientist don't go into the room. Um, the, the scientist wants to destroy it, so he really wasn't planning on going in anyway. But then he elects not to destroy the room. He throws away the, the dynamite that he was going to use. And so in the end, it seems to be, in Stalker, another failure of the modern. In this case, the failure of modern people to experience the sublime, right? To experience that overwhelming sensation of something that transcends rationale. Um, and the complexity that, the, that modernity affords, which is very nice, can lead to more comfortable living and probably much better... Um, what what Kant would call mathematical sublimity, right? You know, we can we can generate 
greater and more complex ideas because we're always standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us and the modern offers us a lot of shoulders to stand on however in this this counter of something either pre-rational or extra-rational that we encounter in stalker well that that leotard idea of doubt of aporia of opening of of the rending of rationale it seems like these modern people can handle it and only stalker in his his beautiful simplicity is really able to go there and embrace this place um and in the end his his loneliness being the only person who seems to be able to do this um, seems to be for him utterly crushing and that might be the fact that he is now alone in modernity that he's both not a part of modernity but damned to be surrounded by it right and those are my thoughts this week on b-side thank you very much and i will see you next time